The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present this recording from Saver 2013 in New York City. This recording is from Friday, June 14th, Vintage Roadshow, featuring Fred Budelman, New Holland Brewing, and David Walker, Firestone Walker Brewing Company. I'd like to get started. I'm Sam Merritt. I run uh, Civilization of Beer Education Consulting Company, and I'll be hosting this room tonight. And uh, I thank you guys for all coming. We're going to have delicious beers, and the people that are so intimately involved with them with these beers with us tonight. So um, I'd like to introduce to you, if you don't know them already, David Walker and Fred Bilt. Built a house, <laughs> but but uh, these guys are are superstars in the industry, and um, they're beer and uh, evangelists along with me. And um, I couldn't be more honored to to uh, host you guys. So I'm gonna host. I'll I'll try to keep things uh, you know under control. But uh, it's it's your show, guys, and and it's your beer. So. Uh, First, uh, I'd like to thank the Brewers Association. Of course, this this uh, talk is going to be uh, broadcast on craftbeer.com. So if you want to listen or send it out to anybody, um, it's going to be on there. And uh, the supporters here, uh, Manhattan Beer and all the breweries that are involved, it's really nice. And, of course, you guys for showing up uh, on this beautiful June night. Uh, and it stopped raining, so we're very happy. But... Um, Without further ado, I think we're going to get into, uh, you know, getting to know these guys a little bit uh, better, and they're going to talk to you about their stories and their beer, and uh, I, I couldn't be more honored. So, David and Fred, thank you so much for being here, and uh, let's get right going, because we have a, a lot of good things to taste, and um, I'm here is just, just for that, so cheers. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. I'm going to take a minute here and just kind of tell you about the format. Uh, it was really enjoyable to start thinking about this tasting and what we wanted to put in it and kind of find a theme. And we talked a lot about uh, wood and, and aging beer in wood or otherwise. Um, but we really wanted to look at some of the more complex and sometimes subtle flavors of age. Um, and so uh, we also talked about uh, food a little bit and, and what we wanted to do for this nice special pairing, bringing some beers out that are uh, sometimes in short supply is fun. Um, so let me just give you an idea of how we're going to go through it, and then I'm going to kick it off to David here to introduce the first beer. You've got kind of two halves in terms of food. We've got um, two meats here. We have a, a speck from uh, Virginia, uh, which is the roll there of the smoked pork, and then we have pork liver mousse, which is on the cracker. And so those two things are meant for the first two beers. Um, it's not one and one, so you can kind of, we're going to taste one beer and you can try a little of each. We're going to taste the second beer and you can try a little of each. Really, as you choose, as you please, uh, we just want you to kind of explore flavors and enjoy. And then we're going to do the same thing with the second two beers, but with the cheeses. So I just wanted to give you the heads up so we don't end up with eating it all, getting to the second beer. So um, thanks again for coming out. We really appreciate you joining us. Let's, let's go ahead and get started. David, why don't you tell us about the first beer? Okay, en enough of the torture. Can you pour these guys some beer? Yeah. Um, well, good, good. I feel um, I, uh, 
I'm very lucky to be uh, to be part of this panel here. Um, Fred did all the legwork on this, and uh, um, we're actually it's it's, it, it's going to roll out to be I think a pretty in interesting 45 minutes. But um, um, so what I wanted to do is we got two beers here. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the beers and sort of weave in a story a little bit about the brewery and and who we are. And um, feel free to throw questions our way um, and uh, keep us honest. Um, and uh, I'm sure you'll get a little bit more boisterous as you get through these beers. So um, let's start with the first one. Um, so this, this beer is sort of interesting. It sort of bookends our brewery. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, my partner and I started the um, Firestone Walker Brewing Company about 17 years ago. Um, and we actually came out of a wine region in the center of California. Um, and basically out of necessity, when we were sort of screwing around with beer, we, we integrated wood at a very early stage. We could get our hands on wood, and I, I distinctly remember finding um, half a dozen clean American oak barrels that had not been used for wine sitting around, and I snagged them. Um, and um, our first beers that we made were all in wood, and they, they weren't very good. Um, but it did give us um, a certain amount of, um, because we came out of the wine industry uh, and out of the winemaking community, we, we weren't afraid of it. And um, for those of you who are brewers in the room, you understand that brewers threw wood out of their breweries 100 years ago. And, and uh, literally, tw uh, as much as 20 years ago, wood was, was still not um, prevalent. In, uh, it's now, obviously, a lot more prevalent. Um, so this, this beer here, which is... Um, which is called Double DBA, is basically an imperialized version of that first beer we made, which was this classic English pale ale that went through partial fermentation in oak, blended back with um, the same beer that we, we, um, uh, we were fermenting in, uh, in steel, and that created our English pale ale. And so what this is, is essentially first runnings off that wort. We then actually take this beer, um, and it, it's, it's technically an imperial... Uh, an imperial special bitter. We take this beer, um, and um, it, it has a, I mean, it's a big beer. It has an original gravity of, I think it's, it's around about 28. Um, and uh, we take it bit, and we actually ferment it in some bourbon barrels and some original, um, what we call our DBA oak barrels. Um, and you get this big, huge sort of malt forward, um, malt forward beer. I, I like to call it a little bit like creme brulee in a glass. Um, and it, it brings, um, it actually, um, for those of you who like Doppelbox, it has that sort of malt forward um, uh, sort of aggressiveness that you might find with a really, really interesting style like that. Um, but um, so this is, this is uh, a very sort of small batch beer that we make. Like I said, it's a nod to us with our, our DBA, and this is our double DBA. Um, and um, I hope you enjoy it. What, what are we pairing this with from a food standpoint? Well, we're pairing this with both of the uh, uh, pieces of charcuterie. So you have speck, which is a smoked, dried ham. Uh, being a, an American and Virginia version, it ha it's a little creamier and a little richer than perhaps the original Italian version. And then pork liver mousse, which also has nice uh, pork liver character and earthiness, but also rich, fatty character. And when we get to the second beer, I think what you'll see is some contrast because, you know, I think that this beer is going to pull that nuttiness and earthiness and, and kind of fruit character out of pork and meat uh, and kind of evoke some of that sweetness forward, and yet it has some, some bitterness to it, and it has some nice um, contrast. But I think, to me, the flavors that are in harmony are going to be the ones that come forward. And then as we move forward with the sour ale, 
which we'll get to in a second, you kind of see a different role where we're going to be taking acidity, uh, much stronger acidity, and, and really contrasting against the fat. While you've, while you've still got this, this beer in your hands, it's a couple of things. Obviously, this is um, the hops, and this a classic English, they're all Goldings. Um, and so that's where you're getting that sort of mild finish. Um, but what's sort of interesting, and this, this really tells this tale a little bit of our brewery, and I think sort of reflects what's going on with small craft brewers and regional craft brewers. Um, so we started out fermenting or, or partially fermenting our English pale ale in wood. Um, we then move on 12 years later. We then start aging our beers in wood. Um, and actually, last year, we've really completed the full circle now. We now have what we call our barrel works, which is a fairly um, significant sort of commitment on our side to actually um, taking beers through uh, secondary fermentation in wood and actually working on with some wild yeasts and so forth. And we actually were going to make a beer this year called Agrestic, which starts with this base beer um, and uh, takes it towards a sort of a Flanders red style. And so, you know, the... the um, the whole circle for wood, from our standpoint, we've sort of completed. And um, it's a big deal to us, not to anybody else, but we feel good about it. So. so I think if anybody has thoughts about, I mean, one of the things that uh, I think we have in common and, and that I like about uh, eating and drinking uh, or pairing is that it's really about discovering flavor and just and really tasting for yourself and, and, and listening to your palate and finding out what it's interested in. So I'd love to hear from you guys as we go along if there's something that stands out that you taste or if there's something that you're either curious about or you're saying this is something I'm picking up we'd love to hear from you as well uh, as your palates are really just as engaging as ours and uh, when you do have a question just uh, give us a heads up so we can bring one of the mics to you so we get it onto the recording okay so I'll, I'll run and jump and do that I, th I think one of the things that Fred and I both have in common is um, is this sense that beers should be balanced. And, um, you know, there is a sense that maybe beers don't need to be balanced. Maybe you need a beer to wake you up and sort of put his hand in the air and say, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm different to everything out, out there. But, um, you know, we, we have a... Uh, um, we, we, we are, we're very um, focused on, on, the, on the balance and the finish of a beer. And all the beers I think you'll try tonight... I think you'll find that that's exactly what they do, um, which is a, um, not, not always a, a given um, with um, modern brewing. Well, David, I'd like to ask you more about your barrel program and, and some of your beers, because I, I'm picking up on something from what I know about your beers and what you've said so far. The question is, um, well, I'll start with a little comment and then ask you to expound on it more. I mean, for me, I think that, you know, blending is an important function of using wood because you're able to continue your signature post-barrel and kind of manage some uh, consistency in a, in a naturally inconsistent process. When you're putting a batch of beer in several barrels, you now have divided it into several different processes. So I wonder how much blending, how do you use blending when you're coming out of the barrels for the different brands that you do that involve wood? Yeah, I mean, actually, Matt, um, Matt, who's our who's our brew, Matt Brindleson, who's our brewmaster and the vision behind our beers, likes to talk about the three Bs in the in the in the in the brewery, which is um, balance, barrels, and blending. And um, you know, blending is something that all brewers admit to doing, but they don't set out to do. And um, it's it's in some ways it's sort of a um, it's a correction. Um, but um, 
you know, we've started, actually, we make our opus every year as an anniversary, and we pull in half a dozen local winemakers to help us blend that. We take a bunch of these beers, and we blend them together to create this beer. And uh, what we found about winemakers is that they're extravagant blenders. They, 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 you know, they, they move with large brushstrokes. They're like, yeah, put some of that in, or just a nibble of this, or throw that away. Uh, whereas, you know, brewers are very sort of um, methodical and almost Teutonic about the way they approach things. And um, I think, I mean, blending to us, especially the more and more we involve winemakers in our process has become very much a sort of a, um, you know, a, a real string to, uh, to the way that we make the beers. And you have the same sort of... Yeah, and I think as we get to the next beer, well, both of our beers here are examples of the same. So um, I think it's interesting because the, at that point, and, and we very much um, follow similar principles, and I think that when you do that, you start to look at the wood differently rather than the finishing stop. And that, well, we're going to take whatever happens coming out of this wood. Each barrel acts differently, uh, depending on what it did previously, depending on all sorts of conditions. Um, but by blending, you really start treating the wood as an ingredient that you're going to work around, and you're going to massage, and you're going to get it to this final result, right. um, rather than put it in the wood, and then whatever happens is what we live with. So we do a lot of adjustments there. And I, Blue Sunday is the next beer that's coming around. And this was really a, an interesting project for us. Um, I think the first time we made this must have been 2007 or 2008, and it was a beer called Moxie. And we did it for our brewery anniversary. Um, shortly afterwards, we got a letter from Moxie Soda, which I didn't know still existed. But uh, we um, started intentionally souring a blend of finished beer. So we were taking different beers that we had throughout the brewery, putting them into various barrels we had around. We had more bourbon barrels than anything because we already had Dragon's Milk, a bourbon barrel stout. But we're in an area with some wineries, and we had some, some different barrels available. So we started blending into the barrel and then blending out of the barrel. So it was literally you know, our red ale, our amber ale, our stout. Um, and we put that, and instead of refrigerating it like we do with our... Uh, with the beers that we're not trying to sour in wood. Uh, we put it in the warm space and we inoculated it with other sour beers we liked. And we just encouraged it to kind of run rampant and develop all those acidic flavors. And then w from those barrels, I, I think we had eight or nine the first year. Um, a year, year and a half later, we just started sampling out of them and building little pilot blends of 20% of that one and 10% of this one. And then when the crew thought they had it where they wanted it, then we went ahead and took that percent, those ratio blends into a tank, and we had the first sour beer uh, of the brewery. And um, then the, the, we did it again. We, I think we made 450 bottles the first year. Uh, so it was a very small, labor-intensive, uh, delicate process. And then that has become Blue Sunday, which is a nod to our hometown, Holland, Michigan, at the time that we made this, uh, they still had blue laws in effect where we couldn't sell beer on Sundays. And we were in the process of trying to change that, uh, starting a campaign to, to repeal those prohibitions. So it was originally kind of a middle finger to the law. And uh, now it's developed into a nod to the fact that we can drink beer and spirits on Sundays, and we do in Holland, Michigan. So little context there. But what I like about it is that there's a good deal of, well, let me continue, let's just talk flavor. There's a good deal of fruit in this. I like the blend of malt. 
And then there's that tartness, that sourness. Um, are there, how many people are sour ale fans in the room? All right, so I, there's not a lot of explaining to do there, I guess. How many people are not? Okay. Okay. Let me, let me make a prediction. You will be. It's, it's, it's like crack. This, I mean, not that I, not that I have that the experience. The first bag is but, free. But it's a, seriously, you have, you have a few of these, and uh, they, they hit you between the eyes. You either you like them or you don't, but I guarantee you'll be in the shower here three, four weeks from now, and you go, mm, I, need, um, I need one of those sour, wild, wild beers. It'll come, I promise you. And one of the ways I like to explain it to people who aren't familiar with it, because the name itself is a little off-putting, because typically, I mean, we, as, as breweries, we avoid sourness, we avoid bacteria, we avoid the things that create these flavors at, with, you know, we put a lot of effort into keeping them out of our beer in almost all senses. So sour in general starts as a flag for your palate, like, ah, I don't know. But if you think about other things and other settings, where do we like tartness? And if you think about what, you know, you really need enough of a bad thing that it becomes good again. So wine left out on your counter too long, when you smell it and it smells like it's heading towards vinegar, that's not so good. Vinegar is delicious. So our palate understands tartness and sour. It just, you just have to kind of turn off the alarm that may be uh, warning you. About, about things, because it is an indicative smell and flavor of something that's gone terribly wrong, um, except through blending and through balance and through bringing the sweetness against that tartness, it becomes beautifully wrong instead of terribly wrong. Do you, um, how, do you, how do you split the two programs up in your brewery? Uh, the, our barrels for Dragon's Milk or anything that is non-sour is in a uh, temperature, humidity controlled cellar closed doors, away from everything. And then the sour uh, program is in an entirely different corner of the building. Uh, we actually are enclosing it, uh, I think, as we speak. So it's grown up a little bit, and now we have a, a room for the sour program. Um, we just got in some big fooders where it's open and wood, and quality control came in and said, there's going to be walls around that, right? Yeah, we... Um I, I don't know if you're aware of the complexity of having sort of, we call them feral beers because it's a way to really distinguish how, how troublesome these beers can be if you put them in your brewery. Um, so we actually put all our feral and wild ales about an hour away from our, our, um, our current brewery. And um, part, of the, part of the problem with dis distributing our beers at the moment is Matt won't let us bottle them on the bottling line, which he's right. So we are actually having to get a little bottling line in to bottle these beers. Um, because we really just don't want any cross-contamination um, of the two tribes. And um, it's, a, it's, a it's, a, it's a fascinating journey. I, I'm really excited about this. I'm, more ex I'm, a, I'm as excited about these styles of beers as I have been in, in, a, you know, in a long time. And um, um, it's, it's interesting. Interesting for the brewers, too. I have a question for you both while we trot out the next beer as it's ready. Um, so... In my experience, can you hear me? Well, in my experience with dealing with this new sour and tart thing that's going on is that sour has always been a, a, a bad thing, you know, for, for palates. And why, why hasn't it become tart beer? And do you think that maybe we'd be better off calling it tart instead of sour? 
And I know it's a left field, but here I am in left field. So. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, like I said, we, we struggled with this. We call, it, we call them our wild ales. Um, we're going we're gonna to have a festival. We'll probably call it our feral fest. Because um, sour, sour does have this sort of, um, you know, it, it does have this sort of odd connotation. What do you think, Fred, about that? Well, I think that, you know, I think it all has merit, but I also think that the craft beer drinker, uh, well, the, the drinker in general, has the ability to assign new attachments to words. I mean, as it, it only takes a, one beer to break through and, and have you like it, and the alarm gets turned off. Sour is a warning word until one sour ale changes your mind, and then it changes your mind for all of them. Then you're open to all of them. I used to not be able to eat blue cheese, um, and then one cheese kind of blew my head off, and I, and I thought that was the one cheese I was going to like, and the next week I ate every blue cheese I could find because my palate had decided that smell is no longer a warning. So I... What's that? Why are the beers called sour? Uh, well, essentially because they have wild yeasts and bacteria that are creating lactic acid and other other flavor compounds that are souring the, the beer. I don't know if you have more traditional explanation than that, but it's, it's ferment. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so there, the, naturally things have been categorized, yes, for, for the competitions and the beer judge certification program, et cetera. So there's a category that is now called sour ale, and it, it encompasses pretty broad range of regionals, uh, regional places to make beer. Berliner Weiss, for example, is considered one of them. Um, also, your Belgian white ales, the traditional ones, are also considered in that category. You've got your Rodenbach red, your Flanders reds and browns are also in the sour category. It, while they're being judged at this time in place, which means that that's what we have right now. But what these guys are doing is going to be growing that section of life as, as beer as we know it and, and changing it. And hopefully, uh, for me, I'm like, oh, sour ale doesn't even encompass what goes on in these beers because it's much more than just tart or sour. And, of course, once you start looking and listening, uh, you'll see, you know. Well, and I want to add another component. Uh, I'll be right with you, Jamie. Um, besides talking about sour and what to call it, I mean, we really need to think about flavor and our palate and what do we enjoy in food and drink. And to me, a big thing here uh, with these types of beers is acidity, is that we use acid all the time to brighten foods, to exchange between rich foods and to, to liven up our palate and to contrast richness or fattiness. And so when you have a charcuterie board in a restaurant, oftentimes there's pate, there's riette, there's all these rich meats and then there's a, a little bunch of pickled onions or there's a little bit of chutney and those are all using vinegar and acid to exchange between the other rich foods so that your palate is going back and forth and is really staying fresh and so that's also how i think about pairing these beers and, and how i make sense of them is like if you're not expecting acidity when you you know like if you're blindfolded and somebody put a glass of beer in front of you that might be a little startling but when you're looking for it because you realize your palate likes it in certain settings, it's a completely different exchange when, when it becomes a craving, when it becomes something that has a role. Yes. Um, we were just talking. 
Oh, okay. That's weird. Um, you know, often the the flavors are so rich, and um, the uh, it's hard to know how strong the beer is. It, I mean, a full flavored beer can also be low ABV. We we just don't know the ABVs of these beers in particular, and I uh, we were wondering what those were. So, thank you. Fair um, enough. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, I, I'm mic-less, so. Oh. Um, yeah, Blue Sunday is listed here at about 8.7. That changes every year because we're blending finished beers of different strengths. So for us, we're blending strictly to flavor. And alcohol, we're going to test for the label at some point. But um, it's, it's considered practically irrelevant, um, or it is irrelevant to us when, when we're building the beer. D uh, double DBA is about uh, 12%. So um, let me just go straight to this one here. So this one you've got here is our Parabola. This is a um, big Russian imperial stout. This is about the hardest beer we make at the brewery. This is, um, the brewers liken this to pushing cookie dough through a strainer to get this out of the brew house. Um, it takes about three times as long to get out of the louter as, uh, as any other beer we make. I mean, just to give you an idea, just a visual idea, um, this goes to the kettle like um, 2050W motor oil. I mean, just hugely thick, rich. We, we class the color, we call it uh, uh, Amazonian Black Panther. That's the, uh, <laughs> that's the color we use. Um, but the, uh, it, this, the original gravity on this beer is, is around about 29. Um, uh, we boil it for a long time. We then um, obviously push it out to ferment with a big, big old boisterous British yeast and, and bring it down to a controllable level. Then we take this beer and we put it in bourbon barrels, um, mainly Pappy Van Winkle or Old Fitzgerald barrels. Um, we leave it in those barrels for about, uh, for about a year. Um, and then what we do is, um, literally Matt then pulls a sample from each barrel. In this vintage, I think it was like 255 barrels um, and samples them. Um, the ones that make the grade um, then we, 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 we then basically sort of clarify them um, and uh, pull the beer off for packaging. Um, it's a big, really yummy beer, coconut, bourbon, chocolate flavors. Um, you know, it's sort of interesting. You wouldn't, I mean, when we started our brewery, to think that anyone would drink this would have, you know, I would have, I would have completely said no. Um, but now, I mean, I think this is, on Beer Advocate, it's like the number seven beer in the world as far as they're concerned, which is more a more a function of votes than how good the beer is, but um, it's, a, it's a very popular style, and is, um, it's, a, it's a juicy beer, and I'm glad you got the 2012. Downstairs, we got the 2013, and we used some Four Roses barrels with that one, so there's a little bit of a difference. Um, it might be worth swinging by the booth to see it, so it's a parabola. So I think before we go to the next beer, we'll, we'll drink this, we'll savor this one a little bit. Um, but I want to talk about the, the food a little bit. So uh, I, love, I love pairing beer to blue cheese because it does it better than any other beverage in the world. Um, and it, blue cheese will throw some curveballs at the other ones. Um, and you can go at it so many different ways because there, you want to contrast and you want to complement or go back and forth or choose them. And, and blue cheese in a, in a great beer can do all of those things. So, you know, roast is a great cleansing agent against the richness of blue cheese and that pungent flavor that's pretty heavy on your palate and really enjoyable, but you also want 
want to refresh a little bit, and roast will do that well, intensity will do that well. And then on the other hand, I think the creaminess of these blue cheeses will bring the uh, sweetness of the beers forward, and it actually starts to, the beers will appear more delicate on their second and third sip rather than more intense. Um, their context starts to shift, and, and the cheese, the creaminess, is really pulling those components forward in the beer, and they start to act really light on their feet. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I love doing, um, and it's a little bit like going to the, you know, the brewer's house, um, when, when I entertain at home, I usually now, I, I pretty much always serve my beers now in big wine glasses. Because um, I want people to give the beer real reverence. It's something about, you put something in a wine glass and things change. Like you put me in a tuxedo, I look better. It's that simple. I haven't changed. Um, and at least so my wife says. Um, you put beer in a wine glass, it changes. And I mean, obviously we're moving towards it with this and the, the Europeans have been doing a good job for a long time. Um, but uh, these sorts of beers are so delightful in big glasses at the end of the evening, paired with, with desserts, or just, just sort of fulfilling the role that port fills in, in our life, um, or at least in mine. Um, so, I mean, the, the, it's, it, these beers are really exciting to, to, to brighten up uh, good evenings and, and great food with. What do we think? to hear it from the guys that make it you know that's just being with you so here's a question what's your name joe um so not to go away from the russian imperial style which is actually one of my favorite beers but going back to the sours i know that britannomyces is always kind of like the chosen yeast strain to go for wilds but have you ever wanted to experiment with kind of like an open cool ship type of belgian variety of just Whatever's out there, let it ferment and see what comes out. And if it, if it does come out, if you have tested it, is it drinkable? <laughs> Great question. Whoever. Well, um, we've talked about uh, creating another brewery with a cool ship. It's on our list of things we'd like to do. I would say that our sour program is definitely not single strain and not very specifically inoculated. I mean, now we're, we're brewing a base beer for that, and we're doing some specific things. But when it started, we were, you know, we didn't really spe specify what was going in. We, we started a garden and let it grow, and then we blended to our palate. So I think, I, I mean, I can't speak for everybody in our brewery or everybody making sour ales, but for myself, I like the broadness of diversity in terms of what has gone into that beer rather than a single. I mean, really, sour beer is giving up some control, and then and then creating with it. So I like it less controlled than more controlled. Yeah, I, I sort of agree. I mean, a cool ship obviously is, the, is sort of the ultimate um, sort of spontaneous fermentation. But, you know, I mean, for instance, in our case, um, we got about 1,000 barrels in our program. Um, we, we purchased 200 old Opus One barrels from a big winery. And, um, you know, th those barrels show up with, with, with things living. And, um, you know, we have, you know, we're creating our own sort of uh, DNA um, in what we call the barrel works. Um, and hopefully, I'm hoping in it, within a year, no one would ever dream of brewing in that place. It's going to be so affected, um, infected. But that's what, you know, that's what happens. I mean, there's, there's more to it than just that. Um, I, I mean, the, the, 
it seems to me, and, and believe me, the, uh, uh, the, the wild beer program at our brewery is driven by um, a guy I, I, I've, I, I call Sour Jim, Jim Crooks. Um, and um, it's, a, it's, a very, it's, it's a very weird place. I mean, I liken it to jazz versus classical music. Everyone's off their head in the jazz chain, um, right you know, from the doorman to the guy who's actually playing the music. So uh, it's a little bit like that, um, if that answers your question. Yeah, and if it doesn't scare you a little bit, you're not doing it right. Um, you know, there's, there's like fear and loathing in the barrel, in the sour cellar. Um, so I'll take you to Dragon's Milk here. Uh, well, one more comment about uh, what pairings can do, you know, the interaction between the two. And what I like about it is that, I mean, when we first drank that beer, it was, it was intense for me. It was a big beer. And for a minute, I thought, I may have put this in the wrong order. Did, I, you know, I went through my checklist of like, oh, it's, you know, what are we doing? Um, and then by three bites of cheese and by the end of the beer, it was just in this really comfortable place. And it was just relaxed and it felt like, and I remember when we started putting this together that I thought about the order and I thought, you know, there was a moment where I encouraged myself to think, you know, paired well, it doesn't matter. Like, like I really want to encourage you guys in pairing to not think about rules and boundaries and it has to be this or has to be that. Really just think about getting flavors that you know, are good neighbors in the same room and let them talk. Uh, and that's kind of what we're doing here. So I felt myself go through that and I just thought I'd share it with you. Like, this just is really a gentle beer at the end of it once you get to know it. Um, and I love that about it and I think food draws that out. So moving on to Dragon's Milk, this is um, really the beer that started our barrel program. It used to be a little single batch specialty for us. It was a beer that our founder, uh, Brett Vanderkamp, designed for the barrels. Rather than, and we had to cart, start, cart, we had to start calling it a stout later because if we didn't call it something, everybody else was calling it something, and it was really just a strong dark ale for the barrel, and uh, and anyways, now it's bourbon barrel stout, and we blend a lot of first use wood, wood straight from the distillery, with a lot of second use wood. So we'll blend into a tank, to our palate, and then uh, and then sterile filter it and bottle it. So we're making it shelf-stable. It's in contact with all sorts of microflora in the wood. It's getting an oakiness, a vanilla character, coconut. It's getting all those tones, blending it with the nice malty coffee and chocolate and all those tones. And then, uh, again, to what David's point earlier, we really strive for balance. We like the drinkability of this beer. We like that it has a marriage of wood and malt rather than one of the other, always being forward which makes it a really nice beer to go either to savory and earthy flavors or to sweet and dessert. It can, I, I joke that this is like the utility infielder of the pairing world. It can play at any course. It used to be the Vienna Lager, yes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not anymore. It's great. Yeah, this is, this is absolutely delicious. It's the first time I've tried this. The milk is, is just a perfect descriptor for this. I mean, really, really bad for you, this beer. Any questions? What else, what else might you pair this with, this, this particular beer? Uh, in terms of like desserts and, and uh, cookies, that kind of thing. Well, funny you should mention it. I have a cookbook that just came out. Um, so, How about that? Yeah, thank you. Um, so in there, it, it shows up a couple times. One of my favorites is a Dragon's Milk Donut, where we make a, uh, I make a, uh, 
a bourbon and dragon's milk custard that goes inside a fried beignet with a dragon's milk caramel and bacon and almond praline on it. Because it's okay to be over the top once in a while. Um, so it, it really, in dessert, it can't fail because it, you know, you think about it, it has coconut, vanilla, coffee, and chocolate as descriptors. And when you go to beer in general and go to malt-forward beers, especially barrel-aged ones, you go down the list, toasty, nutty, caramel, roasty. All these flavors are essentially the pastry chef's cupboard. So you have all these flavors that are known and expected in the dessert world, ready to contrast against dairy and, and pastry and all that stuff, caramel, etc. And then savory it can be really surprising. I love it with things like beef and mushrooms and those earthy tones. Um, you can really take it into a place where, where you would have either pairing it with balsamic or in place of balsamic, because there is a tannic structure that comes from barrel aging um, that will kind of get accentuated. It's fairly subtle. Um, and so that's kind of the range. Um, it, it goes in so many different places. And again, especially if you, if you don't think style all the time and just what flavors are there and what do I like those flavors with? This, you know, I'm just actually reflecting on the concept of Fred making a fried beignet um, <laughs> in, a, in a pair of silk pajamas. Hey, we're talking about beer. It's not wrong. We're actually talking about beer, and isn't it fabulous that? Um, um, and and you know, this is this is essentially what the next two days really are celebrating from the Brewers Association standpoint is how beer is really taking on a life of its own and. Um, um, how you can connect all these flavors to, to a sort of a finer, high level of, of uh, um, you know, of, I mean, I don't wish to get too spiritual here, but a high level of life, just sort of understanding what you're eating and just not throwing stuff down your throat that doesn't mean anything. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really, it's really, I, I, I mean, I'm, I feel completely inadequate that I, I haven't written a cookbook. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I felt this way for a day and a half since it's been out. So, um, so can we open it up for a few questions and we'll go? Yes? Uh, thank you guys, first off. Work. Cheers. Um, I, I definitely see the connection with bourbon barrels, with the maltiness, especially with that speck. You almost get like that molasses flavor. Um, more so with the sours. You guys ever mess around with any wine barrels? Since you guys have backgrounds in, or at least connections, we have a number of wine barrels in our program. I imagine you have a lot more than that. Yeah, we. Like you mentioned the tannins also. I didn't know how yeah. long that. Yeah, our our our, um, our wild program is almost 100% um, uh, second-use wine barrels. And our sour program has migrated <laughs> to much more wine barrels or sherry barrels or those types of barrels uh, rather than bourbon. We found bourbon competes with the sour a little bit. And so we actually would like to be in, in different uh, barrels for that. But it's, you know, we started it, we had more bourbon because those were the, that was the wood we had uh, to experiment in. There's a, there's a magazine called Malt Advocate. And I see in the future something having to do with other things than malt. Because if you do whiskey and beer, you know, whiskey sort of just starts out as beer and then gets, you know, done up. But when you're dealing with other things, which these guys are, especially the wine side, you're going back to the very, very beginning 
of fermentation and civilization. And you're going back to what do you have in your cupboard and what are you going to do with it to make it all happen nice. And that's a beautiful thing because, you know, it's not all about malt. Yes? All right. So Joe has another question. We'll get to him. Sorry. So um, kind of a two-parter, at least when you use the bourbon barrels for your whichever beers, do you normally go for, I know it's a blend, but do you normally go for a specific age, like a 12-year, 18-year, 21-year, and then on the sour side, when you use the wine barrels, do you kind of look for certain barrels for Hungarian, French, American, or is it just kind of like literally whatever you can get your hands on, kind of make a blend of it and then see what the best product is? Well, I'll answer the bourbon barrel question and hand it over to David for the wine. Um, for bourbon barrels, you know, we may be looser than others in a way. I mean, we're starting to be a pretty big customer for a beer, customer buying bourbon barrels. But in the grand scope of things, we're still a tiny customer because the scotch industry requires bourbon barrels to, to age their scotch. In, and so they're buying a lot more barrels than us. For, for us, though, we really look for condition of barrel and availability and timing and we want to go in a fresh barrel we want to have barrels that have integrity and we're less specific about which whiskey um, and and I think the flavors that different whiskeys contribute are, are pretty uh, small when you, when you get into the bigger blend of things but we are just now starting to take a look at that and start and, we, and we're, it's a little more robust program and we have some opportunities to do some single barrel studies and, and make some decisions there but um, you know, hopefully that answers the question. We're looking, and then we age ourselves. Uh, we're aging ninety days uh, per barrel with the beer. David. Yeah, I mean, it, we're, we're still in early stages. We're in our second year. Um, we did a, a collaboration with Mikkel last year, and um, we we put that beer in Viognier barrels. Um, and uh, you know, we have literally we have. Uh, probably more than a dozen different wineries barrels in our in our um, program at the moment. So, um, it's, yeah. It's almost limitless. The team. Uh, so well, a couple well, more questions. Yeah, and just one more thing on that. I mean, realize that, like this is the greatest recycling project ever. Yeah. So when we're taking barrels that have been used for something already, you're on the used market. So you're looking for something that's interesting and has has good value and that you'd like to work with and. When you see it, you get it, rather than I'm going to have this specific thing every time. That's, that's gone. That's buying tanks. Uh, barrels are a different, a different deal. You know, what, what's really interesting is um, when we, um, our very first, um, my very first colleague, and he was actually our, one of our first brewers for a while, he used to just go crazy with us using wood to make these English pale ales. I mean, he just thinks, he just said, you know, you're, it's a crazy system. Why are we doing it? Um, and a lot of it had to do with the fact is um, he was so worried about this sort of secondary fermentation with the wood. And um, I actually found him. He went walkabout for about 10 years. They had a great story. Um, anyway, we, uh, I, found, yeah, I, found him, uh, I found him again and uh, coaxed him back into the brewery. And he's now actually helping out to run this sour program, which is brilliant, because now he's like, okay, all right, so now we can completely screw up the wood, <laughs> the fermentation. <laughs> who, who cares? Um, and it's, the, the point being is it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a brave frontier. It's, um, I mean, you know, uh, the folks from Cantillon, you know, they know exactly what they're doing in their, in their wild and crazy way, 
Um, we're still learning how to be sort of wild and crazy at the moment, so. Beautiful. So, uh, if I can grab. Uh, so, this has just been an amazing conversation for, for me to learn from these guys about what's going on with this type of brewing. Because it is, um, from my 20 years in the business, it seems to be the, the edge, the sharp cutting bleeding edge of what's going on and so it's it's exciting to see this stuff um and i just want to thank them with you so cheers guys really appreciate it again i it'll be on craftbeer.com and uh boy you have hours and hours and many beers so thank you david and fred uh any parting remarks there for you both uh my parting remarks are we do have these pairings today over on this table uh, so if you want to know the foods and the beers that you had, there's sheets over there. There's some other sheets that have some events listed, one of which is a, a book event. I have to plug at some point. A book event uh, tomorrow, 1230 at Spite and Dival. So if you're around, we'd love to have you out for uh, beers and books. David, anything from you? No. Salute. Thanks for coming. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2013, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2013, as well as all the salons from previous years at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.